And we're back. We're actually here in the beginning of the show, not back. Uh, we're here at the De- Deacon's Roundtable. I have with me Deacon Dave Egan from the Village of Victory Lakes. And Deacon Mike and Deacon Richard, who are normally here, are not here. Welcome to the summer. They're off on uh, business and work uh, commitments, so we wish them well and hope they, they come back. And we're listening to WSFI 88.5 FM. And I am Deacon Greg Webster from St. Raphael the Archangel, as I always forget to say, and Dave reminds me by pointing at me while we're on the radio. <laughs> and uh, I have to say, Angela, I got these numbers in front of me, and every time we, we I see here, one of these days, I really just want to give out your mobile fo- phone and, and just see how many phone calls you get for this, but it would just be me bugging you anyway. But let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Almighty good God, thank you for the blessings of this life. Please help those that are dealing with the humidity and, and the heat find find comfort. Please help uh, all those in distress, whether it uh, be for personal or work or any aspect of their lives. Give them the confidence to seek you out, Lord, in prayer. And remember, Lord, for allow us to, to recognize the dignity of all from natural conception, from those in the immigrant to natural death in our lives. We ask this to Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 we also honored today to have Deacon, Deacon Dom Serrato. Did I say that right, Dom? That sounds good. Close enough. <laughs> Who is the... Uh, John, Don's, got, uh, Don's got a lot of, lot of hats he wears. He is the... the uh, uh, in charge of deacon formation is that a vicar position or how how do they say you, you say it in Joliet? You're in charge of form, uh, deacon director, formation, director, director okay. of formation, director of formation for the diocese of Joliet. He is the editor for the Deacon Digest magazine, which every deacon out there should have a subscription to, and he has a background in. Uh, Moral theology and medical ethics, which is kind of what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, and uh, we're real honored, Dom, that you would take some time to visit with us. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here, Greg. So, Dom, a little bit about becoming a deacon. What, what's your story? What was your journey to to becoming a deacon? Well, uh, really, it starts fairly early on. I, I'd like to think uh, early on in going to Catholic school, being raised more of a cultural Catholic, but still going to church, uh, and sensing a call at a very early age, at least that my life was more than just living it for myself. Uh, around high school, I started to fall away a little bit from the church, and while I was at college a little bit, uh, but then I met my wife, uh, and uh, she was a devout Catholic. Her father was what uh, strangely enough, was called a deacon. Now, this was back in 1980. I had no idea what a deacon was, uh, uh, and so I thought, well, that's a good thing, but wanting to impress her, and I think wanting to uh, really rediscover my own faith, I began to delve deeper and deeper. We married. Uh, I was then in the Navy, stationed in Holy Loch, Scotland, for about four years, in the first four years of our marriage. And as I grew in love with her, as I discovered my vocation to marriage, I, at the same time, discovered my vocation to the diaconate, or at least the call to something deeper. I don't think I identified it as the diaconate at that particular time. But nonetheless, shortly after I got married, so I got married when I was 22, um, then I, I really began to foster this idea, particularly through the example of my father-in-law, who was a very gentle man. And so as I progressed in my marriage, 
I decided that, well, I was 22 years old, 23 when perhaps I've got the call. You have to be at least 35 if you're married to be ordained. Well, God's calling me. I want to be the best deacon I could be. So after I left the Navy, uh, I uh, decided to study theology. Uh, and I went to Franciscan University to study theology. At that time, we only had two children. I finished my uh, my undergraduate, then moved on to graduate studies because I liked theology, because I discovered that it was more than just about studying cold doctrine, but rather it was about falling in love with Jesus, uh, that we did, as von Balthasar says, uh, study theology on our knees. Uh, and so I saw it as faith-seeking understanding, because we can't love what we don't understand. So I wanted to progress on, and thanks to the openness of my wife, I was able to do that, and progressed on to the master's degree, and then on to the doctoral degree, and I did these at Duquesne University. Uh, and uh, all during that time, sensing a call to the diaconate, but having a major obstacle in front of me. And that obstacle is that there was no program in the Diocese of Steubenville. Uh, there had never been a permanent deacon ordained in the diocese, and so it was unlikely that I was going to get ordained if I stayed in the Diocese of Steubenville. That is, by human standards, but of course, if God is calling you, God is providing a way for you. So uh, around finishing up my doctorate, um, uh, I was working part-time in the diocese as the director of natural family planning, and I knew the bishop. The bishop came in, and I knew there was a program up in the Youngstown Diocese, and I requested to be able to go to that program from the new bishop, who knew me from working in the diocese for a few months he was there. So he called me up one day and said, Dom, I don't have a problem with you going up there. And so I went up to the, uh, the diocese of Youngstown, completed my formation, and in 1995, at the age of 35, was ordained the first permanent deacon in the diocese of Steubenville. Very cool. Congratulations on that. And I know you Thank moved you. on since there, but I had a question for you because you you said you can't love, mm -hmm. you said you can't love what you don't understand, and I don't know that I understand chocolate, but I certainly love it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you have enough understanding to know that you love. It. So, How about that? So, but but do any of us really understand God and Jesus to a point where that would hold us up from loving Him? Uh, well, certainly we understand him in stages. I mean, because we're dealing with the infinite God and we're finite. So God, it says in the Catechism, reveals himself certainly to Israel and to each one of us in stages, because we can't possibly uh, totally understand God. We can't wrap our minds around him, but we can understand enough to fall in love with him. So let me give you a parallel to this. When we meet our spouses, we don't know everything about our spouses. We'll never, even after 50, 60 years of marriage, know everything about our spouse. And our spouse is finite like we are. Nonetheless, at some point, we know enough to commit. And that, that uh, as marriage progresses, there's a deeper unfolding of the revelation of one another, and therefore, the deeper the love. So there is a point of, uh, uh, if we understand love as a gift of self that wills the happiness of the other for the good of the other, there is a point where not knowing everything, we can know enough to commit. That's very cool. So you, 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 uh, you were first deacon in Steubenville, went to Duquesne, and you live in Joliet, Illinois. How'd you get there? <laughs> a long route. Well, after a while in Steubenville, because it's a fairly poor diocese, there wasn't an awful lot of work. I did work at Franciscan University for a while, but I did want to get into parish work, and I found some parish work in a large 
parish in the Diocese of Richmond. Worked there for several years, enjoyed it as the head of adult faith formation, uh, but I became ill for a while, had some uh, medical problems, moved back to Steubenville area, and uh, applied for a position in the Diocese of uh, Joliet for, among other things, the uh, head of pastoral concerns. What's fascinating about this is that when God leads you to one area, uh, then that's not often the place that you'll end up. And while I interviewed for a job in the Joliet Diocese, the bishop turned to me and goes, you know, Dom, I think I have something that would suit you better. And they had developed the position, they had funded the position, they had not yet posted the position of director of formation, which is just right in my wheelhouse. And so uh, I, I interviewed for that position, they had posted it, and I was offered the position here in the Diocese of Joliet, and I, and I thoroughly love it. So that's part of my journey, how I came from Steubenville to Joliet. You know, everyone who's, who's uh, listening to this radio station, WSFI 88.5 FM, uh, being an EW, EWTN affiliate certainly has heard over and over again Franciscan University and, and that all the good work that they, they tend to do. But what's it like as a, as a college campus? I've never been there. I, I'm just kind of curious. What's the college experience there? Is it a bunch of people who only only uh, sit around and do rosaries all day, or is it a real college <laughs> atmosphere? Or what's it like? Well, in many, ways, uh, in many ways it's like an ordinary college campus, and in many ways it's very different than an ordinary college campus. Most certainly you have a vibrant student life. Uh, the, ki- the kids are not all walking around with habits, uh, you know, thumbing the, the beads and so forth. I mean, they're like any other kids in many respects. However, there's a bit of a difference there, and that is uh, that uh, Father Michael Scanlon, way back in the 70s, when it began to undergo a kind of uh, conversion as an institution, placed our Lord first. And when he did that, everything else sort of was ordered to that. And so, at least when I was teaching there, 70% of the student body attended daily Mass. Now, where in the country does that happen? I mean, there are some amazing Catholic colleges besides Steubenville. And that really sort of set the tone for it. And so you do have a vibrant student life uh, in many respects, but you have a uniquely, well, I won't say uniquely, but certainly a Catholic uh, uh, ethos where the youth engage in the faith, but, you know, uh, are still... uh, jovial and and friendly and so forth. It is, to me, an amazing place. I not only went there, I have three or four of my kids who have gone there, so when they call me for money, I say, don't call me anymore. You've got all my money. (laughs) So you've gone to Joliet to be the the director of formation. Did you, uh, uh, what year did you get there? Uh, I'm here about uh, 15, 16 months. Okay. And, and was the program pretty established when you got there? Did you start a new one? or uh, you know, The sad thing about the Diocese of Joliet is most of us in Chicago could not name the, uh, who the bishop is, but we know the Bishop of Rockford, we know the Bishop of, uh, or the Archbishop of Milwaukee here, of course. But uh, Joliet's kind of like our, our little unknown secret that we have next to us. And I've actually lived in the Diocese of Joliet for a while, and I know what a great mm-hmm. diocese it is. Um, but uh, what, what, what is deconformation down there compared to what it is in Chicago? 
Well, I, I can't speak directly to Chicago's program. I can tell you that uh, Bishop Conlon uh, brought me in and, and funded this position because he felt that while we had a very good program, and in many respects one of the better programs in the country, it could always be improved. Um, and uh, because over the years, things tend to get sort of legacies aspects to it. So, you know, things are done and then other things are done and then you begin to lose focus. So he wanted me to look at the program, evaluate the program based upon the national directory, the norms for uh, the formation of permanent deacons and so forth, and kind of reestablish it, put it together. And one of the things that I, I saw immediately that was that we needed to do is ensure that the interior life was the source of the deacon's diaconate. And that is to say that the spiritual life isn't simply one aspect of the four aspects of formation, the others being intellectual, pastoral, and human, but the spiritual will have to be at the core of it. it just as the soul is, is at the core of the body, it fuses it, permeates every aspect. So spirituality and particularly intimate communion with Christ the servant had to be at the core of this. And so working with a number of people, and particularly working with uh, folks like Deacon Jim Keating uh, and, and uh, adapting and stealing part of the focus of the Institute of Priestly Formation, bringing it over into the diaconate, we were able to put together, and we're continually working on this, we'll put together a program that emphasized spirituality, and therefore that spirituality then enabled us on the intellectual level to grasp the truth more profoundly, on the pastoral level, to be able to minister more effectively, and on the human level, to connect uh, with relationships to others in a more powerful way. The National Directory, I don't know if it's a requirement or not, but most dioceses um, deacon training program are affiliated with a, a university of some sort, right? Is there an affiliation well, in Some Juliet? are, but some are not. That's, what, that's one model. Okay, so is, is Joliet affiliated or not? I know you have Lewis University nope, there. We're, we're, we're not. I mean, there are, uh, there are a couple of models. All of them are valid. Some of the challenges when you're associated with the university system and having run a master's program, uh, I can tell you at, a at Franciscan University, I can tell you this from, from the inside out, is that sometimes when you're associated with those, of the four pillars, the intellectual, the spiritual, the pastoral, and the human, you end up with three pillar, three toothpicks in one pillar. And that is to say so much emphasis is placed upon the intellectual that you can lose the balance you need with the others. Now, this is not always the case, but when a master's degree, let us, take, let us say, is taken wholesale from uh, a college or university that is not particularly diaconal in its focus, and used, that's one of the things, that, and, and therefore you have to compensate uh, with other aspects of it. So we decided that that's not the way we're going to go, because unless a master's degree is specifically aimed toward the diaconate, uh, you're spending an awful lot of time on other things when you could be spending time on some of the more essential aspects. You know, I tell my bishop kind of quite jokingly, if I had these men for eight years, I could make them great deacons. Uh, but I don't have them for that. I have them for essentially four and a half, five years. Uh, and that's, that's not a lot of time to move people through the discerning process. And that's what the program's about. It's about discerning uh, the diaconate. Through the discerning process, uh, it just takes some time. And how many, how many deacons in Juliet will be ordained in uh, this year or next year? 
this year will be 25, uh, and uh, we, we stay around 20 to 25 each cohort. We run two cohorts, uh, so every other year we start the program. That's, that's, that's an impressive number, I think. So well, there's a, I think it's owing to the concentration of Catholics, particularly in the northern part of our diocese. And you certainly have to have the uh, support of the bishop and also support of the, of the, uh, the priests and the, and the clergy in the diocese for, for to, to gain those kind of numbers. Well, I think so, and I think, um, like Chicago, we started relatively early, not as early as you did with the, the diaconate. And so many people in, in this area have grown up with seeing deacons. Um, that's a big difference than Steubenville when I started out, because many people looked at me and said, well, what is he? Is he glorified altar boy? Is he junior priest? What is he? And uh, never having never seen a, a deacon. And so I think when you have generations of deacons, uh, people growing up, then it's a little bit easier uh, to to uh, draw men into the diaconate. That's pretty good. Well, we're coming up on our first break here at uh, WSFI 88.5 FM and uh, uh, www.wsficatholicradio.org on the Internet. Uh, we'll be back shortly. Did you know that you can listen to WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio from anywhere in the world? Our live internet stream is available at WSFIRadio.org. Just click on Listen Live. We also stream on the TuneIn mobile app for your smartphone or tablet. For iPhone and iPad users, visit the App Store, download the TuneIn app, sign up for a free account, and then search for WSFI. Click follow to add us to your profile. For Android users, visit the Google Play Store, download the TuneIn app, sign up for a free account, and then search for WSFI. Click follow to add us to your profile. Need help? Call us at 224-206-8455. That's 224-206-8455. Hello, I'm Bill Wennington from the Church of St. Mary's and the Chicago Bulls. I, I believe Catholic Radio is important for all of us out there listening to help us through days when maybe our faith is being challenged by many different obstacles that are put in our way. And it's a chance to reflect and just think and hear stories from other people that maybe are going through the exact same issues that we are going through and how they have struggled and how they are getting through their problems today. WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio is committed to bringing quality Catholic programs to our local community. We only can do that with your financial support. Take a moment now to donate online at wsfiradio.org or mail your tax-deductible donation to WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. That's WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. Donations of any amount are greatly appreciated. And we're back. Staying, thank you for staying with us on the Deacon's Round Table, round table at WSFI w, uh, 88.5 FM on your radio dial. We're talking with uh, Deacon Dom Serrato, the, di the uh, Diocese of Joliet, Dave Egan from Victory Lakes, and myself. And uh, Dom's been telling us about some of his, uh, 
work down there. Um, I actually met Dom because I found out that he is the new editor of uh, Deacon Digest magazine, and that's a, a very popular magazine in the Deacon community, and hopefully outside the Deacon community it'll grow with, with Don's, Dom's leadership. Dom, can you tell us a little bit how you got involved in that? Well, uh, probably about uh, three or four months ago, I received a, a phone call from Gretchen Crow. Gretchen is the editor-in-chief of the Our Sunday Visitors uh, News Weekly. And uh, she had asked me to do a couple of articles in the new rebooted uh, Deacon Digest magazine that was coming out. I certainly heard that it was being rebooted. It was purchased uh, from Abbey Press by our Sunday visitor, oh, about a year ago. Um, and uh, I said, sure, I'd be interested. And then she said, well, tell me what you think about the diaconate and, and how it's changed and where it's going. And we had a nice conversation over the phone. And then she said to me, would you consider putting your CV in for uh, the position of editor? And uh, I jokingly uh, kidded her and said, is it a paid position? She said, yes. I said, you have my attention. Uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, but all kidding aside, I, uh, I kind of said, well, I, I said, I'm already working. Well, this would be a part-time position in which I would uh, go out and, and get uh, folks to write in and vet the, the articles and so forth and give it a character and a kind of personalization. Well, after a conversation with my religious superior, who just happens to be my wife because she is superior, um, and so having a conversation with her, it was pretty clear that this might be something that I should take on, and the Lord might be asking me to take on. So after a series of interviews and visits and so forth, I, I took the position, and we just released our very first uh, issue. In fact, this month, uh, you will receive it in the mail if you're listening uh, just this month. So we're very excited about this because while Deacon Digest had been around for quite a while, many years, uh, it being a way, the diaconate lost its sort of national voice. And so this brings back that voice. And also with us celebrating our 50th anniversary of the Restoration, it gives us a new opportunity to sort of visit those aspects of the diaconate that distinguish it from other ranks within the threefold hierarchy. I think it's very important that Angela takes note that she should take her picture of the uh, Deacons Roundtable Deacons that she has on her website and send it to Dom so that we can be a cover story on Deacon Digest because obviously so for good four good-looking deacons such as ourselves would drive up circulation right there, wouldn't you say, Deacon Dave? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm really looking forward <laughs> to that. <laughs> Well, good luck with the new publication. I've, I've always been a fan of Deacon Digest, and I, and I hope to see it grow. And I hope it to see it grow in an area where more than just deacons look at it. Well, I appreciate that, and I think we'll, we'll have the opportunity to bring uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of fascinating things are happening in the diaconate uh, right now. Particularly, and I think the deacon, diaconate itself, is finding its own voice in a way that it didn't even 10 years ago. So bringing to bear those kinds of things. It won't be a theologically or scholarly magazine, but it also won't focus simply on best practices. It'll try to bridge that gap, grounding pastoral practice in the, the theology and teachings of the Church. So, Angela, we don't want to pressure Dom here, so I think we should target the November issue being the cover story for him. Sorry, there. So, <laughs> so Deacon Dave, where are we going here? Okay, so for the last few months, we've been dealing with um, healthcare ethics, and some of the other uh, shows have been dealing, helping people deal with situations that they're finding themselves 
uh, in. So we have, you know, things I've recommended is talking to, you know, priests and our deacons and our chaplains at hospitals or hospices to try to get an understanding of what the Catholic Church calls in dealing with the uh, moral directives from the bishops. So there's one case that I would like to bring up now, which I think is um, is a great example of uh, one of the common things that people face, especially as they're uh, taking care of their parents or otherwise. So the story is this woman, Gertrude, and her name was Gertie. She was 83 years old, and she's had dementia for about 11 years. And she was transferred from the nursing home to the hospital uh, four days previous to the treatment of her third episode of aspiration pneumonia. What's that, Dave? In the last four months. So what aspiration pneumonia is, is that if you're eating, that instead of all the food going down the esophagus, some of it goes down to the trachea, into the lungs. So just you're aspirating, it's like when you're coughing up water, but the elderly sort of can't do that, and it leads to pneumonia. But mm-hmm. this, So this was actually her third episode in the last four months, and her physician says that she can no longer eat anything by mouth, but should have a feeding tube, and that's called mm-hmm. a PEG. And so they have the that right. certainty. What well, we said, a lot of people in our audience don't know some of these terms. So her only daughter, Anna, was very reluctant to give consent for that procedure. And her daughter, Anna, was the health care power of attorney. And the patient had been a widow for many years after her husband's death, but she continued to live in her apartment. She enjoyed music, knitting, uh, going out to her Catholic church just down the street. And she was, her daughter was very close and oversaw her care in the apartment for years after she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and even hiring uh, live-in help. Is that four years ago, Gardy became incontinent, was unable to get out of bed unless two people lifted her. So Anna found a nursing home operated by an order of Catholic nuns who had a reputation providing excellent care at the end of life. Over the ensuing four years, Gertie has slowly deteriorated and now no longer recognized her favorite nuns or even Anna. She, mm-hmm. does, she doesn't speak, occasionally smiles. She'll open her mouth if food is offered. And the nuns have had to feed her with a spoon and an eyedropper for the past several months, a process that takes over an hour for each meal. Mm-hmm. So Gertie had no advanced, written advance directive, but early in her dementia, she told Anna she didn't want a bunch of machines and tubes when she was dying. So it was on that basis that Anna was very reluctant to consent to uh, insertion of this feeding tube, this peg tube. On the other hand, Gertie's physicians convinced that oral feeding, even as painstakingly done by the nuns, risks recurrent uh, aspiration and perhaps shortens her life expectancy. The nuns are therefore unwilling to take her back without a feeding tube. After the wonderful four years in this nursing home, Anna would prefer not to change to a new facility and a new doctor who are willing to care for her without a feeding tube. And she would like her mother to die among those who know and love her. So part of the discussion that then came up was um, was the, this big debate that is actually relatively current in the healthcare system about the use and non-use of feeding tubes. Mm-hmm. Now, now most healthcare professionals consider a feeding tube to be medical treatment and optional in any given situation, you know, as a treatment. You know, sometimes they're morally obligatory. Like, for example, when a patient's unable to eat and has a reversible condition. And sometimes they're not when a patient is unable to eat and is actively dying. Still, in other situations, they're used as optional. You know, when the patient is 
severely debilitated but not immediately dying after a like stroke or someone with advanced dementia. And most mm-hmm. most professionals are willing to follow what the patient and or the surrogate wishes in such situations. Still, there's a lot of other people who disagree, believing that the feeding tube is not a treatment, but an expression of the loving care, and as such, it's always morally obligatory unless the patient is clearly and intimately dying. So um, one of the great things about this case is it really demonstrates, you know, the difference of opinion. Meaning the patient's daughter recognized that her mother has a fatal disease, and though through a prediction of when she would die is uncertain, you know, she believes that her mother would not want the feeding tube at this advanced stage. Her doctor and daily caregivers, however, believe that dementia is not a fatal disease, and they further believe they are obligated to provide optimal nutrition. And her daughter places a high value on her mother's continued care and prefer that she spend the last few years or weeks with her friends. So, I mean, this is sort of a dilemma, I think, that there's a lot of our listeners you know, sort of have to deal with. I know that I have to deal with this or talking to families in the uh, retirement community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, it's a very big dilemma as to, you know, what would the patient want, so their autonomy, you know, and it's the surrogate's job is to actually, you know, advocate for the patient for what they want. And also the, the ethical directives consider... Uh, feeding tubes or supplying food as ordinary, not extraordinary means of care, unless the doctor says it is a burden for the system, right? Yes, I mean, it's, um, so when that actually came out with the Vatican, there was actually quite a big debate with um, some of the healthcare ethicists dealing with that, saying that, you know, putting in a peg tube involves surgery. It opens up the person to, you know, potentially more infections. You can argue the other side of it that you're going to be decreasing the potential infections because they're not going to be have aspiration pneumonia anymore. Um, but what do the patients want? You know, um, as are we trying to stop the dying process? Right. You know, so I mean, that's a you know a great debate. And so, um, what are your thoughts initially on? Uh, sort of this dilemma and at the end I'll go through what the recommendations of the ethics committee was and the follow-up yeah yeah well it's certainly a multifaceted case in many respects um, one of the key aspects of looking at a case like this is asking whether death is imminent uh, because what we don't want to do is prolong the dying process right we don't want to prolong that but we don't want to hasten it either now no one knows where that sweet spot is I mean you know it's going to take some prayer and discernment and understanding but but good moral theology applied here always asks two questions the first is what is the case and you laid that out and you notice that in describing what is the case then you have a number of medical opinions that you have to deal with and then the next question is what ought to be the case in other words we can identify perhaps who is the agent that must make the choice whether it's the surrogate or the patient but that's not all there is i mean that's that plays right into the abortion argument which says that it's simply the choice that matters not what the choice is so once we identify who the agent we have to then bring to bear the fundamental moral principles to determine from what is the case to what ought to be the case. Now, in the case of feeding tube, you've got to keep in mind that foods and fluids are really, in the Catholic mind, uh, part of care. 
Because if you argue, and it's a fallacious argument, if you argue that it's treatment, you have to show where the pathology is. So what's the pathology? Uh, hunger? Thirst? Uh, then all of us suffer from that. And, and, and so a feeding tube, which has been around, now understand this, it's been around since the 50s, Maybe I should adjust that. The 1850s, and it has improved so that it can be done in an outpatient basis. Uh, and I had a physician friend who said he could do it in about two and a half minutes. So we're not talking about uh, it is invasive, but no more invasive than having eyedroppers and you know spoons shoved in your mouth where you're finding it more difficult. So, so to provide this, if death is not imminent, it doesn't sound like that's the case. Uh, and if foods and fluids are part of care, then it follows that the correct moral judgment, regardless of who makes it, is that you uh, put in the feeding tube uh, so as to allow that person to have access to food and drink, even when the person is dying, to deny them foods and fluids to the extent they're able to get it, then, then, then also has a problem with the dying process, because dying is a process. And if you read the Nancy Beth Cousin case, and the testimony of doctors who tell, say what happens when foods and fluids are pulled, it's far, far more horrific than if someone is allowed to die being hydrated and given nutrition. Now, I'll very much agree with, you know, everything that you just said. Um, you know, I said the part of it, it, the interesting part is when you have the different medical opinions about, you know, the, what one physician would say versus another and trying to balance all of this information about what is the greatest good. Well, wouldn't right. you? But keep in mind, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, when you did your, your, your criteria, um, we should also throw in the what is the burden? Because you yeah. know, and, to whom, and to whom the burden is. It's not just simply yeah. what the burden is, but to whom the burden is. Sure. And the burden should rest uh, the patient. So if you're looking at burden, uh, you also have to look at not so much the family members. We're all burdened. We can have an addicted right. uh, uh, child, and that's a burden. So well, that a, doesn't, you know, a, that, a does, person that, that can, A person can never be a burden. They always have their dignity. I'm talking about the medical burden, the economic burdens and stuff that the ethical directives allow us to, to, to take into consideration as a whole 360 picture of the, of the scenario. Right, right, right. But if, if you look at the way that's applied in what is called the principle of double effect, there are three uh, prior conditions of the principle of double effect which protect the dignity of the person. Otherwise, if you go simply to benefit, you fall into what is called a cost-benefit analysis or, or what John Paul calls consequentialism, which is repudiated in Veritatis Splendor. So we've got to be very careful when we look at that. We don't fall into the trap of doing cost-benefit analysis, which is really, I would argue, outside of the realm of authentic Catholic health care. Now, people will disagree, but I will root my, my argument in the fundamental moral principles expressed in Veritatis Splendor. No, I think you bring up an absolutely great point, um, and where that burden really comes into play, I think, is when you're getting at um, very expensive medications and the aspect of that, and the question that you very much raised, are you just, if it's not curative, are you just delaying the process, extending the dying process? And well, that, that gets to be a tough question. I mean, that's a very different issue than what this case is. When I, you know, we're yeah, coming up yeah, here yeah, on yeah. our our next our next break here but i i would like to explore the principle of double effect and and 
when we get back because I, I think there's there's some times when theologians justify in 2018 is that always the golden rule we should be following so Dom if you can hold on to us we're going into our next break thank you for listening to the Deacons Roundtable we are at WSFI 88.5 on your FM dial and we'll be back shortly Hi, this is Brian Farley, host of Men of Christ Radio. For 10 years, through conferences, retreats, workshops, and special events, Men of Christ has been helping men to live their Catholic faith more boldly by exposing them to Catholic teaching, practices, and speakers that open eyes and change hearts. Well, now, we'll be doing it on the radio, too. WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, to be specific. Tune in every first Saturday at 10 a.m., and again every first Monday at 10 p.m. right here on WSFI for Men of Christ Radio. Spiritual warfare, the power of prayer, defending the church, and more. We'll be talking about all of it on Men of Christ Radio. For more information, go to WSFICatholicRadio.org. Men of Christ Radio, inspiring conversations about your faith, your family, your nation, your world, and what you, as a man of Christ, can do about it. Want an example of a false sense of security? How about relying on the life insurance you get through work to pay for all of your final expenses? Do you have plans to retire someday? Or do you plan on working for that company for the rest of your life? The fact is, you may lose your life insurance when you leave a company. I'm Matt Tomlinson from Catholic Financial Life, and I invite you to share your hopes and dreams with me. To discuss your options for protecting your family, call me at 847-548-MATT. That's 847-548-6288. Products and services not available in all states. We are back. We are with uh, Dave Egan, Deacon Dave Egan from the Village of Victory Lakes. We are with Deacon Greg Webster from St. Raphael the Archangel. We are missing Mike Alandi from St. Mary the Annunciation and our Vicar of Deacons for Chicago, Richard Hudzik. We wish them well in their endeavors. And we are with Deacon Dom Serrato from the Diocese of Joliet. We're talking a little bit of uh, medical ethics and health care. And, uh, Dom, thank you for your input. And I think Dave is going to uh, talk about uh, what some of the, the ethicists have come up with on this case. So, as I said before with uh, Gertie, so what I was going to do is go through the recommendations from the ethics committee and what the follow-up was, and then just a comment in general. So in the recommendations, they said that it would be ethically permissible not to use a feeding tube for this patient because she wished to be free of such encumbrances while dying. She should continue to be offered and given food and fluids by mouth. Should she aspirate and develop pneumonia, the level of treatment is optional and includes the spectrum of rehospitalization for intravenous antibiotics, oral antibiotics at the nursing home, or comfort care with the expectation that the infection may take her life. The... The second one was the physician and nuns who provided loving care for this patient should not be required to violate their personal beliefs. Their right of conscience would preclude transfer of the patient back to the same facility without the provision of artificially administrated fluids and nutrition. An absent absolute refusal by the patient, her daughter's wish for her to die among her friends may outweigh this loosely stated preference such that it would be ethically permissible to insert a peg tube. So what actually ended up happening is that Anna looked at other nursing homes, but ultimately consented 
rather reluctantly to the insertion of the peg tube, the, the feeding tube. Gertie went back to the same nursing home with the understanding that if aspiration should occur, she'd receive oral biotic, antibiotics at the nursing home, but would not be transferred back to the hospital. And she ended up dying at the nursing home about six weeks after the hospital discharge. Anna had mixed feelings about the course of events. She was very pleased that her mother died among her friends, but wished she could have honored her mother's wish to avoid tubes at the end of her life. And so some of the comments about this case, that it illustrates the differences of opinion that may be encountered in dealing with the issues of feeding tubes. And sometimes right. these... And sometimes these differences f fall among religious lines, but other times they do not. And so the obligation to use a feeding tube is not uniform, you know, throughout all the different traditions. Mm -hmm. you know, in this mm -hmm. case, the physician and the nuns took uh, a stance that they felt was morally right. And it's equally important to recognize their right of conscience. And if this patient's daughter had chosen not to institute the feeding tube, the physicians and the nuns should very much be supported in their stance and not feel pressure to accept a patient back whose decision or whose surrogate's decision violates their personal moral boundaries. So mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that that's a, this is a great case of looking at what the moral obligations are for the uh, caregivers, for the institution, as well as for the patient and the daughter and trying to weigh all of those things. And so at the end, the daughter, the overriding wish of having the mother wanting to die with the people who knew and loved her and took care of her, that overrode, you know, the very much reluctance of uh, having to put in the, uh, the feeding tube, the peg tube. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's just, right. I think that's sort of a dilemma a lot of people or families are dealing with of... Um, how do you do the greatest good? And so one of the things that you just mentioned a while ago is double effect. And that falls exactly into that of, um, you know, has to be proportionate reason to put up with the evil, you know, and the attention must be good and the effect must be, come take place doing the good act. So, um, but you know, I get I get challenged by this. I'm a big fan of the double effect, and an 80-20 rule. I think it works wonderfully. And but there are times when life isn't so black and white. And I think the perfect example is the Phoenix case from years ago, where we had a uh, a mother who was uh, having issues with with the pregnancy. She she tried to carry it. The doctors told her not to get pregnant. And there's a point where the the hospital had uh, elected to do an abortion and to save the mother's life. And actually, they wouldn't say they did abortion. They said they took removed the uh, the organ, the placental organ. And uh, the, the bishop of Phoenix ruled that that was an intentional abortion, and excommunications ensued and stuff like that. I think the interesting thing about that, looking at this case so many years later, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but um, I think the double effect failed failed in this one, and and there's a lot of theologians who have looked at this and said, you know, in this particular case, we need a little bit more guidance. So we have Jermaine. Was it help me with this, Dom? G R I S E Z. Jermaine Rizek. Yes, thank mm -hmm. you. 
you know, he, he, he outlines four conditions that we should look at, uh, particularly when holding a, a baby's death may be accepted to save the mother. And he'll say that, that some pathology threatens lives of both the pregnant woman and the child. It's not safe. Mm-hmm. It's not safe to wait, or waiting surely will result in the death of both. That there's no way to save the child, and finally, that an operation that can save the mother's life will result in the child's death. And this is a situation in Phoenix that, that I think most moral, ethical people who have looked at this have said that this this child was not was not viable. It was not going to terms. That if the in the uh, the hard line or the or the straight line is that saving the mother is not brought by the death of the unborn child, but the removal of the organ, and that uh, some of the people in the case said that uh, you know this this was a a direct abortion. However, if you look into the case, this baby was not viable. This baby wasn't going forward, and we had the opportunity to save the mother, and that's where they went. And I guess. You know, this is something that's going to go on in our church for a while to have this conversation. But, uh, you know, you certainly don't want them both to die. <laughs> but oh, we, sure, can never sure. choose, and, we can never choose one over the other by any means. Right, right. Uh, and I think it, and now remember, I've been out of the, the loop on this for some time. Uh, but nonetheless, I think there's a document called the uh, a Document on Procured Abortion. I, I, I want to think it's by the CDF they put out, which uh, outlines that there may be, may be necessary, uh, as in the case of ectopic pregnancies or a cancerous uterus, where the baby is, the baby is in essentially a dying state. There's no way, for example, in, in, given our technology today, that a baby who is, um, in, in essence, stuck in the mother's fallopian tube right. and, and can't move is going to live. Not only that, but if the baby does continue to grow and then eventually dies and becomes septic, the mother, of course, will then perish as well. And so that's what the principle of double effect was designed. But, but it never was never meant as a panacea. The principle of double effect arises when you have two possible effects the good effect and the bad effect, and you're faced with a moral dilemma. One never uses the principle of double effect if there are other ways in which to, to deal with it. Moreover, we should feel not comfortable with the principle of double effect because we have to tolerate, not the light, but tolerate the bad effect along with the good effect. Somebody dies. And so we should naturally not feel comfortable with it. Nonetheless, in very difficult situations, it can provide a guide, at least not to do things like intrinsic evils, which is really the first aspect of the principle of double effect. So that would rule out that. It would rule out doing an evil uh, uh, in order to bring about a good. It has some, I think, very good elements to it. But, But the deeper question here, and you bring it up in the beginning, is that when you're looking at an ethic, consult, even within Catholic hospitals, often the people who are on that ethics board uh, uh, don't share the same fundamental values. Keep in mind that there are no such things as purely medical judgments. Most medical judgments are grounded in fundamental values, and that's why you have different medical opinions. The science might be clear, may not be clear, but they may come at from two different perspectives. So understanding that an ethics committee may come up with a plurality of judgments is only reflective of a society that has a plurality of ethical judgments. And unless you have people who share the same fundamentals, uh, you're less likely to get any kind of common consensus among them. Well, I think, 
your point is very well taken. Um, but the, I mean, the case in Venus was actually a Catholic hospital. It's a Catholic sure. hospital. So, but, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that by virtue of the fact that they're a Catholic hospital, uh, they're necessarily going to make decisions consistent with the Catholic Church. Not, not, I'm not trying to demean or diminish. Uh, uh, point taken. That, but, point but, taken. But, you know, mm-hmm. but they, they were trying. And that's that's the case the case with the Phoenix mm-hmm. Hospital. They were trying to be consistent with the teachings of the church. The classical rusing, the, you know, the biggest difference is that there was not a diseased organ that you could clearly apply the double effect to. It was the fact that the the presence of the embryo was was causing the mother's the mother's issue, and in turn, the baby was no longer viable. And I think that's the unique mm-hmm. aspect of this case is that that this child was not going to survive, period. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. where do you go from there? And that's where the the, the, bla- the, the principle of double effects not so black and white here and and where we have to, to thank God for Pope Francis, we have to look at, the, put a little pastoral as emphasis in this, not just so black and white on this. Because right, God didn't right. give but, us a roadmap. But any attempt to do pastoral without a theological grounding then rips it loose from its mooring, and so we need both and. It's not either or; it's both and. How do you do? How do you apply this in a charitable way? So I think that's a very important distinction. It is. I mean, but it's, I mean, it's not dissimilar, and when you really think about it, of someone who uh, is pregnant and finds out they have uh, breast cancer, and and depending on the stage of it, do you treat the breast cancer, you know, to potentially save the life of the woman, realizing that, you know, that the fetus may actually die from the chemotherapy, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah. that's a tough dilemma, especially if you have, you know, a young woman who has other children at the house, you know, and what do you do? I mean, and right, right. that's well, a horrible decision. No matter what you decide, you're in trouble. Well, well, that's true, and, and, and that's uh, there are going to be clear cases where it's going to be black, and clear clear cases where it's going to be white. Right? There are going to be clear cases that you can do this. There are going to be some that are going to be obscure, and some even more obscure. This is life this side of heaven. It's it's in no way uh, uh, you know condoning it. It's just the reality that we live in, and so we're going to have to make decisions. And we never make decisions, moral decisions. We never make them in absolute certitude. Never. Uh, I don't know that when I put my foot on the brake, the car is going to stop. I don't know the airplane I'm putting my family on is going to stay in the sky. Um, we only make them on reasonable certitude. And so we have to find the most reasonable course. Now, this also means that we need to pray and we need to discern. That's another element that I think is missing often in the case of many conversations in medical ethics that stand outside of the religious context. And that, that's not to say we're going to get locutions from God to tell us exactly what to do. It will say that if we're, if we're stuck in the middle of a very difficult decision, and we've got to make a decision one way or the other, we recognize we could make a wrong decision. At least we can pray and surrender to God and then do the best we can. And remember, God doesn't bind us to the impossible. Uh, and so we can only make the best decision in a very in that uh, concrete uh, situation. situation. Yes, right, exactly. And I think you've, you've just hit my point that I like to make all the time, is that medical ethics and spiritual direction are intimately related to each other and should be companions on the journey because of the, the, the discernment point that, that's needed as well. 
That's, that's right. And unfortunately, you know, if you're uh, talking to a moral agent that perhaps doesn't have a religious background, I think as a Catholic, I can still make the point using natural law. I could still make the point using personalist philosophy. I needn't go into the theological, although I think the theological, I, I know the theological adds depth, dimension, color, and texture. It gives it purpose. It, it actually allows suffering to have meaning beyond the mere endurance of pain. Uh, and so, uh, so the faith aspect, I think, is very important. But I think that a good Catholic ethicist is at home also in the world of, of natural law argumentation and personalist, and can make the case, I think, uh, at least reasonably to non-Catholics, why something like feeding is simply a form of care and not a form of, of, uh, of treatment by simply challenging them and saying, what's the pathology? What's the pathology here? You know, Dom, I think this is a an aspect of, of ministry that deacons often are involved in, because whether it's their own family or other families are often asked as, as often, certainly as we should talk to our priests about this as well. But going back to your hat with a deacon formation, wh where do you prepare your deacons for this? I think, can you prepare your deacons for this in three and a half years that you have them, or how do you attempt that? Well, it's a challenge because you have to say what is essential and what is important. Uh, and understanding formation as a continuity between the post-ordination formation and, uh, and the pre-ordination formation. There's a continuity that goes there. So yes, I think that you can do some of these things. This is not as obscure as sometimes it seems to be. Now, I don't want to give the impression that you just open a book and there's the answer. But, but if you're grounded in the fundamental moral principles, then doing things like medical or sexual ethics becomes so much more clearer. If you're not grounded in that, and then it becomes just so obscure and one opinion is good as another, and everybody's welcome to their own opinion, but not their own truth. And so I think I, I spend the time grounding my, my aspirants and my candidates in fundamental principles. If they have the principles, they now have the tools. If they don't have the principles, then it's, it's muddled. So beginning with grounding them first, of course, in the doctrines of the Church, what the Church believes. Then morals follows, because to faith without works is dead. And so grounding them in good, sound moral theology, and helping them understand that theology isn't so sophisticated that the ordinary person can understand it. From there, then you move on to talk about both medical and sexual aspect, but they're not going to be ethicists. They're not going to be able to work in hospitals the same way somebody who does it every day is. But they're going to be able to ask the right questions, seek the right counsel, and help that person as Christ would help them in the best way they can. I think one thing she said that was um, rather important with that, that they'll know when they come across the situation, they'll know enough to start to ask the questions and go to other people because they realize there's a dilemma there that needs to be addressed. You yes, know? yes. Anyway. And this is this particularly true when it happens in their families because deacons will be called upon as the kind of a religious expert. What should I do? But often you're sometimes too close emotionally to be able to see and therefore to be able to go and seek that counsel is very helpful. Yeah. One of the other things you mentioned of discernment, which I think is extremely important, but the other aspect is sometimes these decisions have to be made very quickly. I mean, yes. you would like to yes. be able to discern and think about something for some time to make sure you're looking at all things and see what, get the opinions of other well-informed, right-conscious 
people there are, but you don't have that choice when you have to make a decision within a matter of hours. Right, you know, right. So all moral decisions are made within the context of the situation. And sometimes we have more time, sometimes we have less. But we're all, we all make judgments based upon the information we have at the time the judgment is necessary. Yeah. And, and the best we can hope for is to try to make the very best decision. And then at some point we need to surrender to God and have a, a little, this is hard, detachability. Uh, from it, uh, we, uh, that's extraordinarily important for deacons to be, have a, and, and priests, I would say, uh, uh, as well, physicians, to be able to enter into a situation and then offer it to God and then walk away from it. Otherwise, we take it with us in a negative way to our families, yeah. to our work, and so forth. Yeah, th- at that point, you own it, and it owns you. Oh, very right. much so. That's right. Very we, much. We so. have to realize that God is in control and t- and have the faith to allow God to do what God intends to do yeah. by all means. Yeah. Right. Amen. So, right. Do- Deacon Dom, thank you for joining us today, as and uh, thank you for your insight. And for our listeners at WSFI, let us always remember that we have ministers of care that are willing in all our parishes that want to come and bring Jesus to you and to have a companion with you on the journey. If you're struggling with some of these issues, call your parish. Get some help. Don't go through these issues by yourself. We have priests who want to help you. We have deacons who want to help you. And we have a wonderful lay ministers of, that will come out and, and, and ha- be with you on these journeys. So don't do it alone. Deacon Dave, could you leave us with a prayer? name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, God, for being with us today and letting us realize that you are there to walk the journey with us as we go through these issues and dilemmas that our families face. Please continue to help us to be open to your word, your understanding, and your love as we walk this journey. Amen. Amen. This is a Deacon's Roundtable at WSFI 88.5 on your radio dial. Have a great month.